Hello, it's me, Casey, from Unbound. Now, I'm sure you were expecting some witty banter from me and Regan, and I'm sorry to disappoint, but I'm so excited to tell you I'm going to be joined by guest host Beth Brandon, our manager of multi-generational programs. And no worries, Regan will be back for our final episode this season. And then we'll be back full force for our second season in March. And now, without further ado, Unbound. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I am excited to talk about some lost neighborhoods yeah. with you. What do you got for us today? So lost neighborhoods happen to be, well, one of, uh, I can't say my favorite topics, but because <laughs> it, your pet projects? it really, really itches a nerve in me. However, yes, it is something I'm highly interested in. How the interstate systems have impacted our communities, specifically here in Indianapolis. I'm coming in today with actually kind of two blog posts. Both of them were written by Nicole Martinez Legrand, one of them in March of 2020 and the other in July of 2023. And they are both the lost barrio of Indianapolis. Barrio, let's start there. With this word, barrio means neighborhood, and where most of the folks in the neighborhood are Spanish-speaking. And a couple of important facts we've got to get right out of the way to make sure we're understanding the blog post is that when we talk about the Latino community, we're not talking about a new Hoosier community. Okay, Latinos have been in Indiana as early as the 1800s, we really start to see a strong presence in the 1910s. And lots of stories that we hear are from Northwest Indiana, like Indiana Harbor area. However, today we are looking at Indianapolis and we start to see in the 1940s and 50s, a small enclave of Mexican and Mexican Americans settling on the east side of downtown Indianapolis. So that's kind of where we're setting the scene. All right, so mostly what I'm going to be looking at is the article called Under the Expressway, The Lost Barrio of Indianapolis. And this is part two, because again, part one will give you a lot of that stage setting stuff that we just talked about. And that was published in March of 2020. If you are interested in reading these, they are on our website under blogs, and you can search for Lost Barrio. So a lot of the research for these blog posts actually comes into play because they are part of a greater story told in Hoosier Latinos, A Century of Struggle, Service, and Success, which was also co-authored by Nicole Martinez-Legrand, who wrote these blog posts. So you get to see some expert, or excerpts of oral histories in there. But if we're talking about a lost barrio, let's talk about where we mean in Indianapolis, because East Side seems very vague. So we are... She has identified the boundaries, the geographical boundaries of El Barrio as 
North Street to the north, Market Street to the south, Pine Street to the east, and Davidson Street to the west. So east to west cross streets were Michigan, Vermont, and Ohio. And if you look at some of the older maps, you would see probably about 160 dwellings that existed, mostly single family homes or double family home or double units and some small four unit apartment buildings. So roughly, um, you know, we've got a dozen or so Mexican and Mexican American families living in El Barrio. This area is surrounded by other ethnicities. What I find so fascinating is that this is such an important cultural hub for these Mexican and Mexican-American families, and it is such a small section of Indianapolis. Yeah. It's also in a place that I didn't realize it was in. Yeah. My one key like landmark there for a giveaway of where I thought that this would be would be the St. Mary's Church. So St. Mary's Church, to, still to this day, holds several um, services in Spanish. So we knew that that was part of it. However, St. Mary's is actually just outside those boundaries huh. on New Jersey Street. So about a 10 to 12 minute walk or about a half mile from El Barrio was, is St. Mary's Immaculate Conception. It's a Roman Catholic church. Now, Nicole does a nice job of pointing out, you know, not all Latinos or Hispanics are Roman Catholic or any particular religion. Those that were worshipped at St. Mary's, which is on um, the corner of New Jersey and Vermont. And then you also have next to it the Marian Center, which served as the location for Hispanic education in the 80s which is a little bit after when we start to see the loss of the barrio. But that area still had all of these things. I find it so fascinating. I go through this area every single day, and I don't see remnants of this community. Yeah. And how, like, that really breaks my heart, but I wanted to know why. So what was actually going on in this community? Well, we had where they lived, right? Let's talk about where they worked. So many of the men worked in various industries across the city, and several supported work on the um, Indianapolis Union Railway. And so some of those first early families lived on Market Street and worked in a Greek-owned restaurant. Hmm. Many of them worked in a Greek-owned restaurant, which I thought was really interesting. Of course, they also had community centers and gathering places like that. So... Two of them that Nicole mentions here in this article is 617 East North Street and 620 Northeast Street. And so um, at those times we had organized by Hispano American Association in response to this growing Latino community in this area, they established these two places which were only 0.2 miles away from each other. So less than a four minute walk of the northern boundary of El Barrio. And they served for the Hispano Center's home all the way until the 2000s. And this organization later joined the umbrella that is now known as La Plaza, 
which might be a little bit more familiar of a name to some of our listeners. And the building does still exist. So it is right behind um, St. Joseph's Brewery. So St. Joseph's used to be a church. It's now turned into a brewery. And right behind that, it is known as, currently it's known as the Historic St. Joseph Event Space. Huh. That was the building that these clubs were hosted in, uh-huh. where people like hung out. So you would see groups organizing there, and they even had some clubs that organized and would meet and host dances. So another building that they had was now known as the Union 50 Restaurant. At the time, it was the Bricklayers Masons Tile Settlers Union Hall. So somebody had an inn That's at this mouthful. Union Hall with the tile settlers setters and started renting out spaces there and that's where they would have community events and the barrio would pay for this rental space and whatever was going on the dances or the musicians by selling baked goods in the community but it was all community based and then of course there was a school nearby that they went to uh, Clemens Sponaget, IPS number nine, and several s- children from there went on to attend Arsenal Tech High School. This is a very small community that we're talking about. Very scrappy community, too, to be able to do all of this themselves. What's interesting is that a lot of people living in El Barrio did not have extended family, which is so prevalent in culture. So instead, this community, this neighborhood, served that feature. So without having extended family, the neighborhood functioned as one large family. Neighbors looked out for each other, they fed each other, they gathered on the weekends. And while this space no longer exists because a highway highway runs through it, the community remembers this and continues to live on and places in Indianapolis are influenced by the memories of those who once lived in this place. Circa what time was all of this? Oh, yes. So the... (laughs) Kind of a key detail there. So the, the 1940s and 50s is really when we see this neighborhood full bloom in community. In the mid 60s, is when we start to see the boom nationally of interstate systems. And so the demise of this neighborhood in its physical existence really comes when 6570 are established. Well, mine is, my article is also from, or is not from a blog post, but it is from Traces. Uh, it is from Traces of Indiana Midwestern History, Spring 2013, Volume 25, Number 2. It is Everyday People, A Neighborhood of Saturdays by Wilma L. Moore. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is more or less a sneak peek, but not sneak peek, because <laughs> I believe the book has been published by this point, for the book the Neighborhood of Saturday's Memories of a Multi-Ethnic Community on Indianapolis's South Side. Mm-hmm. And so Wilma sets the stage of this article by talking about an event. 
It's an event dedicated to history. Former neighbors have come together to talk about a neighborhood that they shared more than 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And although the time was snowy and cold, it was warm inside. Uh-uh. The neighborhood itself was located on the near south side of Indianapolis. It's now known as Babe Denny. Mm-hmm. The north And south and east and west street boundaries for the neighborhood were seen as South Street to Morris Street and Madison Avenue to West Street. Yes. So essentially the area that is directly behind Lucas Oil. Right. Correct? Yeah. Yeah, it is. That was a a big moment for me. (laughs) And and when you're looking at Babe Denny versus Old South Side, you have a lot of overlap in what things are called and what streets or railroad systems are used as the boundaries yes for the the purposes purposes of this this article though those are the boundaries it was held at the jewish community center and it was for the launch of the book that i mentioned previously which was a project that had been coordinated by uh professor susan b hyatt from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. She and her students, including editorial and research assistants Benjamin Linder and Margaret Bowerly, had worked with former African-American and Jewish residents to reconstruct what this neighborhood looked like. And so Hyatt's project got acceptance from the community uh, the university community and also several organizations with ties to that Southside neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's this organize this event had celebrated a three-year project which included oral history work, um, as well as scans of photos and artifacts that belonged to these former residents. And their shared voices, sh- their uh, shared voices, built the environment and schools and religious institutions that were shared between the two groups Mm -hmm. so this book a neighborhood of saturdays examines the neighborhood from the 1920s to the 1970s and it acknowledges other groups within that neighborhood but the focus is on uh sephardic jews and african americans yeah and so according to hyatt the greatest overlap between the presence of the two groups is between 1930s and 1940s mm-hmm. with much of the commun- Jewish community moving further north in the city during the post-World War II period. There are two maps in the book that suggest the level of vitality of the area before and after the inter- addition of Interstate 70, yes. which is what was mentioned with the barrio. Yes. So, which is very interesting because not only were both these communities here, they were near each other. Yes. They were kid a corner. few miles away. Yeah, not even. Not even. Not even. They they almost touched. Hmm. I had to say, uh, Market Street and South Street. They're on opposite sides, though. So you've got the barrio on the east, and then the old South Side actually, because you have the fount. <clears throat> if you were to go straight down like Alabama or sure. East Street for the barrio, you hit Fountain Square. Hmm. You've got two neighborhoods over to get to the old south side. I don't know another way to describe this. 
<laughs> I know you're probably not wrong, but that feels wrong. Anyway, um, the point is these two neighborhoods were very close to <laughs> yes, each other. Yes, they were very close to each other. Um, and the fact that they were both destroyed is very, very sad. Um, many African Americans relocated to other areas of the city during the 60s and 70s, and the title of the book pays homage to an annual picnic reunion held the first Saturday in August by former African American residents and the importance of Saturday as the Sabbath for the Jewish community. Yes. In fact, that uh, picnic is still happens as an annual picnic to oh. this day. And it would have happened just a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, participants of the project told their reconnection to the people that they had not seen for decades mm-hmm. um, at a time when racial segregation in Indianapolis schools and uh, and housing patterns were the norm. Black and Jewish individuals were called special friendships that they had started at uh, schools and in their neighborhoods. And both communities identified continuity within their individual cultures through their religious institutions. Mm -hmm. So these two groups, very, very different, have come together and started to share over decades. And during a time of segregation, I think one, one really interesting story that has come out of that neighborhood was... Um, at the Orient Theater, which is exactly where the interstate, where the on-ramp is now, um, it was still a segregated theater. So many of the Jewish population were allowed to go in, and many of the black neighbors were not. And so instead, the um, Jewish community would go and let them in a back or a side door, I forget which one exactly, and have their African-American friends be like, come on in. You, you come with us. We're good. We're all good together. Just like, yeah. sneak in. <laughs> I love that story. That is a very good story. Um, so, but as a part of their community's melding, um, the South Calvary Missionary Baptist Church and the Bethesda Missionary Baptist Church remain on the South Side and continue to serve both their congregations. Mm-hmm. Many of the members of the two congregations have moved to other parts of the city, but returned to the old neighborhood to worship. Yes. The uh, Etz Chaim Sephardic Synagogue moved north with its congregates. Mm-hmm. During the, the evening of the book launch, the project participants brought with them the compassion of their memories. The early acts as projected by those memories, set them on the path to construct their worldview and their lives' works. For that group of people that night, what was on stage was their humanity, the glue that brought together all of the structures that they discussed. And those of us who had not, and those of us who have not been neighborhood residents received the benefit of their reminiscence taken back to a time and place that mattered. Wilma has a way with words. Wilma had a way with words. Yes. Yes, she does. And even though that was a very short article, mm-hmm. it was a very wide glimpse into what that community meant and what that, that at a time where people were very divided, mm-hmm. two very disparate groups could come together yeah. and create a very tight-knit and close community Mm -hmm. that still matters to today. Yeah. And even a a very economically successful community for a very long time. 
Um, I highly recommend everyone read this book. <laughs> I, I personally love it. Um, it is available. You can actually purchase the book yes. at the Indiana Historical Society. Yes, you can. Um, and if that's out of your reach, and this is something that you still want to learn about, you can access a library. <laughs> yes, or pages of it online. Yeah. This is a community near and dear to my heart as well, living on the south side of Indianapolis and knowing how these interstate systems affect people, especially as we are talking about, you know, we just did the north split and they are about to work on the south split, looking at how for 6570 interchange and looking at how the changes that we make today will impact our communities for decades to come. And this book is a really great example of that. Yeah. Beth, thank you so much for joining me once again yeah. to discuss these communities that, although physically gone, are still together. Yes. Um, and thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed the stories today, and I hope you join us next time. Once again, I would like to give a huge thank you to Beth Brandon for filling in for Reagan on these last three episodes. I know I had a wonderful time recording with her, and I hope you guys had a wonderful time listening to her. And also, someone else is excited to be back. Hey guys, it's me, Regan. Um, yeah, a big shout out to Beth. I listened to your episodes and they were great. You're a natural. And I, I do want to also extend a thank you um, on my part for for picking up my slack while I was gone and, and needed your help. So thanks so much, Beth. And I am excited to be back. I have truly missed sitting down with Casey and talking nonsense and history <laughs> and all the fun things that we talk about. So I will be back for our season finale. In two weeks. In two weeks, and I can't wait. Yep. And then after that, we'll be back for season two. And it is shaping up to be our best season yet, dare I say. Dare you say. We have great topics. We have great conversation, great articles and blogs and all, all sorts of fun stuff. Yeah. We have truly expanded for this second season. Yes. So we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.